It's Tuesday, January 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. On October 15th, 2018, 13-year-old Jamie Kloss went missing in Wisconsin after her parents were killed in their family home. Jamie was missing for 88 days before she was found last week. 21-year-old Jake Thomas Patterson was arrested and charged with kidnapping and the murder of her parents. It is an odd story that still has many unknowns. It is unclear why Patterson targeted Jamie. All we know is that he saw her getting on a school bus, and according to investigators, he knew that was the girl he was going to take. My producer Miranda joins us for the details we know, including how she was found and the former social worker who kept her safe until police arrived. Next, there's an effort to make hipsters the new hunters. The number of Americans 16 and older who hunt has dropped 18% from two decades ago, and an older generation of hunters is pitching the sport as a way to make sure that the meat you get is local and sustainable. Zusha Ellenson, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how hunters are targeting hipsters with slogans like, hunters are the original conservationists. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's such an overwhelming, amazing, happy ending to such a horrible beginning. Right now, the first step is surrounding her by love, making sure she's safe. In due time, we have to take little steps. Jamie, when she's ready to talk, she will. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking about this crazy case of 13-year-old Jamie Kloss. She's uh, from Wisconsin. She went missing for about 88 days in total after her parents were found dead in their home. It was in the news. It reached international headlines. The town just went crazy trying to track her down. There was uh, various uh, search parties just to try to find her. What do we know, Miranda? We know that on October 15th, 2018, James Kloss and Denise Kloss, the parents, were found shot to death in their home in Barron, a town in western Wisconsin. The next day, October 16th, investigators said that they don't consider Jamie, their teenage daughter, a suspect in the parents' deaths. The day after that, October 17th, authorities announced that investigators believe Jamie was in the family's home when the parents were fatally shot. At one point, more than 2,000 people, Oscar, were looking for her, trying to find her. Yeah, so this all started on October 15th. It was just a few days ago on January 10th when Jamie was found alive in the town of Gordon. It's a small community, just about an hour from her home. And they took a suspect into custody. His name was Jake Thomas Patterson. He's 21 years old. And he's being charged now with homicide for the parents and the kidnapping of 13-year-old Jamie Claus. He was in court, and we learned a little bit more about Jake Thomas Patterson. We still don't have a clear motivation for what happened. But one of the big confusing things once uh, they captured him was to find out why her why did he pick her? He hasn't specified exactly why he chose Jamie. He he said that he was on his way to work. He was working at a cheese factory. And when he was driving to work, he saw her getting on a school bus. And he basically told himself, that's the girl I'm going to take. And he actually attempted to kidnap her two times before finally going through with it. Because every time he went over there to do it, there were too many cars in the driveway or too many people around. He would chicken out. Investigators said that he planned this out pretty meticulously. He went there a couple times, kind of chickened out, didn't want to do it. But the family had said that there was never any contact with him 
and the family before, so they don't know him. It's kind of weird. He took her back to this cabin about 70 miles away from her home. So if he's in town, I guess, to work and he just happened to see her on the school bus, some of that is kind of weird. But he, as you said, he went twice. He got scared off. The last one he went, he went up to the door and he shot Jamie's dad. Jamie and her mom had went into the bathroom to hide and he broke down the door there. And then that's when it got very gruesome. Yeah, he broke into the bathroom and instructed Jamie's mom to tape Jamie's mouth shut. He shot the mom in the face and ultimately taped Jamie's hands together, taped her feet together and dragged her, admitting to the police that he almost slipped in the dad's blood, dragging Jamie's body down to his trunk of his car. Investigators have said that he planned this out. He shaved his head, shaved his uh, face. He wore gloves. Yeah, he took a shower. He didn't want to leave any traces of himself at the crime scene. And even the car, he took out the dome lights. He took out the lights from the trunk. He even went so far as to take off his license plates, replace them with stolen license plates so that if anybody did get the plate number, they'd never be able to sync them up with the cars. He also was so meticulous that he specifically chose a very popular gun, cleaned off all the shell casings before putting them in and loaded them with gloves so that there'd be no way to trace it back to him. So Jamie was in captivity for 88 days, about three months. And while she was there, one of the first things he did was instruct her to take off all her clothes and then he destroyed them so he can hide the evidence. And he made her hide under his twin bed every time somebody came over. Anytime he had a friend or a relative over, because you got to remember, this took place just before Halloween. So the holidays happened. He apparently would leave for 12 hours at a time during the Christmas season to go visit family. And when she was under the bed, he would stack tote bags and laundry baskets around the bed with weights and barbells stacked against them so she wouldn't be able to move them without him noticing. It's not as if she couldn't push them because of the weight. It's so that he would see if she had tempted. Right. And apparently she had tried to escape two times before she was able to ultimately get away. One of the remaining mysteries is we don't know if she was sexually assaulted in any way, but he did routinely threaten her saying something bad will happen if you try to escape or if you move these things or if you come up from underneath the bed and when people would come over, he'd turn on loud music so nobody can hear things. So he took a lot of great pains to scare her into submission. So let's talk now when she finally did get to escape and was found by a neighbor. There's a woman. Her name was Jean Nutter. She was walking her dog. Her property was right next to the cabin where Jake Patterson was staying and holding Jamie Claus. And she said, we have a little bit of audio. She did an interview with CBS this morning where she kind of described seeing her at the edge of her driveway and then hurriedly walking up to her. So I quickened my pace and got to her and she just sort of fell into me and said, I'm Jamie. And I said, I know. Did you recognize her right away? Right away because her pictures are everywhere. Yeah. Then my CPS child protection brain really just clicked in. And I, I knew what was going through my head is, okay, I know your circumstances. I know what happened to you. I know the person you're with is potentially dangerous. My only responsibility is to get you to a safe place. What luck to run into a right? child, a former child protective services person who had training and how to deal with sensitive issues like this. She said Jamie was wearing like some leggings, maybe like an oversized shirt. And she thought initially slippers because the shoes looked so big, but 
I think they were uh, Patterson's shoes that she she just needed something to wear. And what struck her was this girl looked skinny. She was not prepared to be out in the weather. It's snowing. There's snow everywhere. It's January in Wisconsin. Yeah. And so she was just taken aback by this. But immediately she knew it was Jamie. And as she said, her child protective services brain kicked in and she handled it with the utmost of sensitivity. Here she is talking about about that. I was not calm inside, so I did not want her to know that. So I, I just practiced all my skills. Talk softly. Don't ask her any questions. There, there were only a couple questions I asked her. First of all, where did you come from? And she told me. I said, is he home? And she said, no. I said, is he in a car? And she said, yes. And I said, what color is it? Because I want, if, I, if we ran into the car, I wanted to have some other plan in my head. And what's really interesting is... Ms. Nutter had the foresight to not take her back to her own home because, like you said, Oscar, her property butted up against the Patterson cabin. So if Jake went to go look for Jamie, it's very likely he would have gone directly next door because he knows Jamie can't get that far in this weather. So the neighbor, Jean Nutter, took her to a house across the street to the family called the Kasinkas, and they sprung into action. When Kristen Kasinkas and her husband recognized the 13-year-old girl, they recognized Jamie, they got their guns. They hid Jamie and Ms. Nutter and Ms. Kasinkas down in the basement while the husband stood guard at the front door and waited for the police to show up. And they found him shortly thereafter. I think the cops were there at the house. They arrested Patterson. We still don't know what the motivation was. He just saw her getting on the bus and decided, this is the one I'm taking But how did he live under the radar for so long in such a tiny town where it's very typical where everybody kind of knows everybody? The neighbor that they took refuge in her house, she's a former teacher. She said when they said the name and we found out who was, I recognized him. I was his teacher and he was just a quiet, nice kid. Yeah, he never really stood out. She said it was a bright, good student with a small group of friends. But by all accounts, Oscar, this guy never really made much of an impact on anybody. He worked in the town. Apparently, he worked for one day at the same Genio Turkey facility as the Kloss parents. One day, and he actually resigned that same day saying he was moving out of town. He worked at that cheese shop, but by all accounts, he was unemployed at the time of his arrest. He didn't have a criminal history. His brother did. Neighbors said they often got into trouble. Yeah, Patterson has no criminal history in Wisconsin, but his brothers had multiple run-ins with the law, including convictions for marijuana possession, bail jumping, and sexual assault. Finally, let's talk about the house that Jamie Kloss was kept captive in. It. From the outside, it looks a little unassuming. It is just kind of a cabin. You go inside and it's very dilapidated. It's dirty. There's stuff all over the place. Tell us a little bit about that, Miranda. Well, I'm going to borrow a line from the New York Post. And their opening line in this article says, welcome to hell. They had exclusive photos of what the cabin looked like. Yeah, and I recommend anybody listening to this who hasn't seen the photos, go online to look because it, it it's like normal, but also creepy all yeah, at the same time. Exactly. It looks like any family winter cabin because there's board games just kind of strewn about. There's books everywhere. It's kind of like your junky furniture. Nothing really matches up, but it's all cozy. But once you see what the bedroom looks like, it's stuff strewn all over the place. It's a tiny bed. You can see all the bags and the laundry baskets with the weights that she had blocking her escape paths. And apparently there's like several half empty gallons of milk out in the snowbank in front the front yard. There's abandoned cars, all kinds of alcohol cases outside. 
And it looks like the cabin is still under some form of construction. You can see there's still insulation and ceiling tiles up on the roof. It looks as if they didn't finish making it. There was also a book titled U.S. Armed Forces Survival Guide on one of the tables. And that's just an interesting note to mention because he did join the U.S. Marine Corps, but he dropped out after about five weeks. They said that his character, the character of his service was incongruent with the Marine Corps expectations and standards. He just was in court. We'll see what else develops and any other details that we can get from this. Investigators have said that they're letting Jamie speak in her own time. They're not pressuring her. They have started piecing together what happened, but I'm sure there's still a lot of the story that we don't know. And as for Jamie, she's been remanded to the custody of her aunt, who is now her legal guardian. So she's at home with family and the aunts appeared on CBS this morning as well. And by all accounts said she's smiling. She's happy. She's acting very normal. They actually posted a picture on social media with one of her aunts and uh, one of their dogs. And she is smile, genuinely smiling. Obviously, there's a relief that comes with that and being safe again. But uh, everybody's saying that she's so strong throughout this whole thing. So I'm sure we'll hear more in the meantime. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. They say, guess what? This is the most locally sourced, sustainably sourced meat you can probably get. And when the person asks, oh, how's that? They say, well, this is white-tailed deer. And then they sign them up with a mentor who teaches them to hunt. And then they actually go out hunting. Joining us now is Zusha Ellenson, national reporter for The Wall Street Journal. The number of Americans that are 16 and older who hunt is down 18% from two decades ago. And now there's this effort by older, an older generation of hunters to try to make hipsters the new hunters. They're trying to pitch the sport as a good way to ensure that the meat you're getting is local, it's sustainable, and probably organic. Tell us a little bit about this. <laughs> exactly. You put it really well. I mean, let me set the scene for you here. So say you go to a farmer's market, right? This is where people who are concerned about their produce, where it's coming, they want it to be organic, they want it to be fresh. And this is where this organization that's trying to draw new hunters sets up shop. This is where they're trying to find new hunters. So they have a little booth. They're handing out samples of venison. And when someone comes to try and taste it, they're like, yum, that tastes pretty good. They say, guess what? This is the most locally sourced, sustainably sourced, and as you said, probably organically sourced meat you can probably get. And when the person asks, oh, how's that? They say, well, this is white-tailed deer. And then if the person is still interested, which actually happens, they sign them up with a mentor who teaches them to hunt. And then they actually go out hunting. And a lot of these people, this includes former vegetarians. This includes farmers, market managers. This includes grad students, your foodies, your hipsters. They actually really get into hunting. It is a great way to experience the process. Most of Americans just go to the store and buy it. Or as you said, they'll go to their farmer's market and buy stuff, just kind of expecting it to have been all done humanely and whatnot. But this is a, a process that you can go through to gain really new appreciation for the animal and the whole process. And you get your hands a little dirty. You know, you, you're involved in part of it. So it is kind of an interesting way to market towards these people. And as you said, they set up 
shops in these farmers market and they got great slogans harvest your own local meat <laughs> hunters are the original conservationists and it hooks people it absolutely does it is really interesting i think it's like the meeting of two worlds in some way right you got these old crusty hunters who are <laughs> you know likely republicans and then you got these young hipsters coming in who are likely democrats it's a nice meeting of the minds but there is actually a lot of overlap i mean i think what some people don't understand is that hunters are committed to conservation so there's a number of ways that's true i mean every time they buy a hunting license that goes to pay for conservation. But number two, anyone who spends that much time out in the wild really has a love for the outdoors and really has a love for the environment. And I think that's what these people start to see when they go out with their mentors and so forth. So it's a nice like cross-cultural thing as well. What's interesting is the problem that they're trying to combat here. We'll get into that in a little bit, but let me just tell you a little about that. I mean, what's happening is that now you have a younger generation, right? And they are growing up more and more in cities and suburbs. Right. And they're gr growing up more and more glued to their phones and they don't um, want to go out and hunt. And that's the real crisis that they're facing here. And we talked to one kid whose father tried for years to get him to go out hunting. And when when his dad would come in on Friday, right, he'd say, you guys want to come out hunting with me? And his teenage sons would ask, they'd say, what time? And he'd say, 5 a.m. And <laughs> right. they'd be like, oh, dad, that's so early. And then they'd ask him, are we going to catch anything? And he'd say, no, no, it's called hunting for a reason. And when I talked to the, his son, he said, he told me, he said, I just don't have the patience for that. And he said, it's sort of symbolic of his generation, right, where you can log on to Instagram, post something, you get a bunch of likes, it's sort of this instant gratification generation. And the idea of waiting in the woods for six hours to possibly maybe catch a deer didn't really appeal to him. Yeah, I mean, that's an important point because for a lot of the older hunters, it was kind of a lifestyle. You'd go out on the weekends and do this and then you'd cut up the meat and you'd have that meat. You know, you'd, you have to make sure to buy that big ice chest freezer, but you'd have that meat for a long time and that was your dinner for a while. And growing up in cities and, you know, people don't have the time for it. As you said, the patience for it is a different thing. It's tough for people and kids to get into this kind of lifestyle. One of the organizations you mentioned in here is called Field to Fork. So they're organizing people to go out on these hunts and, and get the meat and they train you and everything. They use crossbows. They don't use guns, which is a good idea. I think it. Uh, you mentioned it also it is a lot more palatable to people that maybe don't mm -hmm. want to handle a gun. And uh, crossbows are kind of cool. Absolutely. So my colleague, uh, he went out with the field to fork hunters down in Georgia. And yeah, what they do is like we were saying before, they recruit at the farmer's market and then they plan these hunts and they go out and they go out with crossbows, like you said, because, you know, some people coming to hunting for the first time, say you're a locavore, you're a foodie, they're not quite comfortable with the gun right away. Yeah. So this is an easy way into it. It also allows them to go hunting nearer to civilization. You know, when you're shooting with a crossbow, it's completely quiet and they can go nearer to the city to hunt, which they like. It also, I think, gets them up close with the with the prey, and it's a more visceral experience as well, which was interesting in talking to some of these first-time hunters. They really like that visceral experience of hunting and killing something and providing for themselves. I mean, these are people who catch the deer and then they use the meat for the rest of the year like people used to back in the right. day. It's pretty interesting. I think this is a really great idea. I would love to do something like this. Uh, as I said, I, I think you do gain appreciation for the animal and the whole process and then the food, you know, it's going to be in your head, but it's going to taste better just because you went out and did it. But in this expedition that, that you talked about in, in the piece, what happened at the end? There was no deer that was killed. That's right. So they proved the young millennials who right. like video games right in that they had to wait all day, several hours up in their hunting stands, and then they did not catch a deer. But as many hunters know, that is definitely part of hunting. There's yeah. many days where you don't catch a deer. But they all did go back up to the shed there, the, the shop there, and they ate some venison tacos prepared by 
by the field de fork guy. He, he was the same guy that cooked up the samples of venison that drew them in the first place. So yeah. they're, they're pretty pleased by that. Zusha Ellenson, national reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Oscar. Real pleasure. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.